welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFBRL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest this week is Ian Garner, an expert on Russian war propaganda. His forthcoming book, Stalingrad Lives, explores how Soviet propagandists created a myth of the battle of Stalingrad that has captured Soviet and Russian minds for 80 years. Uh, And he's now working on his second book about fascism and the future of Russia. Um, Thank you very much for joining me today, Ian. Good morning, Steve, or indeed good afternoon to those of you who are in Europe. Good good evening to those of you who are in Asia. Thank you for having me again, and uh, I'm very excited to get going talking about what is going to be another very interesting week in Russia. Yeah, I mean, the sort of, uh, I guess the propaganda and the events kind of on the ground are coming that uh, fast and, and furious. Um, it's great to have you on the, on the uh, podcast again, uh, Ian. Now, obviously, the most striking thing about Russia's war against Ukraine since Putin ordered a massive and unprovoked new invasion in February, more than seven months ago, is the scale of the human suffering in Ukraine, the killing of thousands or tens of thousands of civilians, and the destruction of cities and towns by Russian forces, uh, which has driven millions of people from their homes. But another aspect, uh, and of course, there are the allegations of atrocities and war crimes. Um, but of course, uh, but another aspect of Russia's war is the propaganda. Uh, and uh, propaganda from Putin in particular, and one big example uh, was his speech uh, this past Friday during the Kremlin ceremony at which he signed what were billed as accession agreements uh, that in Russia's eyes um, made four Ukrainian regions part of Russia, the Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia regions. Um, I think it's worth mentioning how kind of breathtakingly outrageous this move uh, by Russia is in the eyes of a wide uh, swath of the international community. Um, Russia has simply declared that these regions, parts of which are occupied by Russian forces, are its own with no legal basis whatsoever. Uh, Russia staged referendums ahead of the attempted annexation, but this process was widely condemned as illegitimate and and escalatory in, in terms of the war. But Ian, what, I, what I'd like to ask you about specifically here uh, is the propaganda surrounding the move. Um, Putin's speech and the fanfare surrounding the, the, the Kremlin ceremony, what, what struck you uh, about it and, and what purposes would you say it, it served, um, I guess, both in terms of uh, the Russian audience and audiences abroad? I mean, this is a huge question and this is a question that's been much discussed. So I want to give a take that's maybe a little bit more of an academic take on it than I might usually give in a podcast like this, but I think it's something worth considering. And that is that events like this, both the speech in this sort of, you know, grand Rococo czarist palace, where Putin was speaking to these rows of sort of graying dull dignitaries and this raucous sort of drum-beating, tub-thumping party on Red Square, all dark lights and flags and in this 
film star who came out, well, star is probably pushing a little bit, who came out and was giving this speech about this isn't patriotic war, this is a holy war. This isn't really perhaps designed, well, it's certainly not designed with a Western audience in mind, except in the most superficial fashion. But I think it's designed as a sort of a performance. And when the word performative is often very much misused in popular language, the academic conception of performative comes from the idea, and I apologize to scholars of gender and Judith Butler because I'm probably monstering this pretty badly. The idea of performativity basically says that when you speak things, the words that we use create reality. The words that we use have an impact on reality. And what Putin has been, is doing, and what Putin has always done for the last 22 years, is tried to be ahead of reality by making outrageous speeches. You, you look back, 1999, December the 31st, the first speech he gave as the acting president was the New Year's Eve speech, which is, you know, like the Queen's speech at Christmas with British people. What did he say? He said, welcome to the world of fairy tales or something like that, right? And of course, Russia's 1990s was just a, a huge mess, basically, for everybody, unless you were one of the six people who came out with squillions of dollars in your pocket. So you declare that reality is a fairy tale, and then you try and make it come true afterwards, right? And you just tell everybody it's a fairy tale enough, and eventually enough people start believing you. And so what Putin has always done is stage these grand protests. It's just feed language and symbol and demonstrations of power again and again and again through the media landscape. And eventually, at such a point, he hopes that there will be a sort of snowballing momentum behind this, and people will simply believe that Russia has annexed these territories. Now, we in the West, of course, will never believe it, and many Russians will never believe it. And I know this is something you want to talk about. But for the people on the fence, this creates this sense that it's possible. It's at least real. The idea that Russia is powerful is in a tangible way demonstrated there, even if it's not being demonstrated on the battlefield. And I think that matters. It's easy to dismiss this. It's easy to dismiss it as illogical. And yet it's worked. It's worked for 22 years to the point that Russia is living in this world of fairy tales and fantasies and conspiracy theories. And enough people are along for the ride that we have to look beyond the realms of the kind of the purely rational to understand how the propaganda has been effective. Yeah, that, that's absolutely, I mean, that's uh, really fascinating. And I think you really hit the nail on the head in terms of uh, Putin kind of trying to create reality with, uh, with what he's saying and, and, and having done that for his, over his 23 years or so in power, um, uh, you know, and, and particularly, certainly not exclusively, but particularly in the run-up and, and, and during uh, the, the ongoing invasion of Ukraine, you know, his, his efforts to, you know, he, he kept saying, essentially, Ukraine is not a real country. Uh, I said this long ago. And uh, it seems you know, clear that he's trying to make as many people kind of believe that as possible. And there are some in the West who have who have have fallen for it, in fact. Um, 
So, uh, you know, and and I guess it's particularly interesting that um, with these new, you know, attempted annexations, I'll call it, um, the, you know, the fact that parts, uh, large parts of most of these regions are not, are not even under uh, Russian control. And there was a development today in which Putin's spokesman essentially said, you know, we're not, he kind of said, we're not sure what, uh, what parts of these regions um, we're, we're annexing in the case of Kherson and Zaporizhia. We're still talking to the people about it. And that was, um, you know, trolling to some extent, but it also reflects the bizarre uh, situation um, that, that, that Russia and Putin have created. Um, so I, I'd like to, for the second question, um, I'd like to ask you, I'll try to keep the preface a little shorter here. Um, in, in his speech on Friday, Putin said many things that many people would immediately dismiss as absurd, uh, for want of a better word. One example, uh, he said Russia was on, quote, a great liberating mission. I believe that's the accurate quote. Uh, and he spoke at a time when Russia is suffering a series of military setbacks in Ukraine. A day after uh, the address um, and after the ceremony, Russian forces retreated under pressure and Ukraine uh, recaptured the city of Liman in, in the Donetsk region. Uh, and remember, uh, this is a city that Russia now formally uh, claims to consider to be in Russia. Um, and there's also uh, been um, uh, some Ukrainian gains uh, and quite, quite stunning uh, in, the, in the south, in the Kherson uh, region, which, you know, again, it's, part, it's, it's only partially uh, controlled by Russian forces. The Zaporizhia region, uh, Russian forces do not even control the, the regional capital. Um, so, uh, and also Putin's uh, speech um, followed, and, and the ceremonies followed a mobilization order that he issued on September 21st that has prompted tens of thousands of Russians to flee the country. So my question is, um, in terms of what Putin is saying, will Russians buy it? Will, will Putin's speech and the other messaging uh, help him maintain control, kind of maintain control of the narrative and control of the country? Or is there a risk that many Russians will just not be convinced? And, and if they're not convinced, does it matter? Will that change things? So I think I'm, I'm going to upset you, Steve, by saying the, the question, in a sense, is the wrong question to ask, just because of the complexity of this word Russians. Will Russians buy it? Well, when you're talking about the whatever 130 million people that live in the country, overall, we, we know what's going to happen. And that is 20 to 25 percent, maybe a bit more, maybe a bit less, will love it. They will lap it up. They will be fully on board with it. Another 20 percent at the other end of the spectrum will take this as yet more evidence that Putin is deranged and that this is a misplaced war. And the great mass in the middle will find them some find themselves somewhere of sort of you know things things carry on as normal this there's no smoke without fire i sort of support the war i'm not quite sure i know i don't like the west putin's better the devil you know you know all those varied opinions but when we think about russians do we mean ethnic russians do we mean people who are labeled as russian citizens but maybe chechens or english do we mean indigenous 
peoples living in Russia? Do we mean people in Moscow? Do we mean people living on the peripheries or in these sort of rusting post-industrial towns in Siberia? And each of these areas will have very different responses, I think. And this is something that is extremely hard to study right now, because, well, most of us will probably understand that the opinion polling in Russia is extremely shaky because, A, nobody's really allowed to do it properly. And B, people in authoritarian countries give very different responses to people in democratic countries when asked a relatively straightforward question. What I would say, though, is that we have to be really wary when we are engaging in social media and when we are trying to ask what's happening of the way in which we create viral narratives for ourselves as well. And I think you saw that a little bit at the weekend with the what were very admirable protests happening among some of the various ethnic peoples and ethnic regions on Russia's borders, people who are saying this is Russia's war, we don't want anything to do with it. And there clearly is a lot of discontent there. But if you logged onto Twitter on whenever Saturday night, you would think that these regions were about to completely collapse, that the local regime was about to lose control of these regions. And yet that story seems to have died down. Where's the story gone for us? Was it a real story at all? How widespread were these protests? You probably all have a sense in your mind of how widespread you believe they were or not. But the answer is, you probably don't really know. And I don't really know either, because it's so hard to get a grasp in this totalitarian regime of what reality is, not helped by the fact that the Putin, Putin's propagandists and then feeding fake news and real news and misinformation and disinformation through the information sphere. And they are inflating and deflating these bubbles for their own population and for us at the same time. And therefore, I'd say we don't really know. But the chances of all of this leading to Putin's overthrow, at least from the, the grassroots level, seem to me vanishingly small. We're not seeing large-scale protests emerging suddenly. This hasn't been the last straw. February the 24th wasn't the last straw. Therefore, where is the country going? I think the opposition is so atomized and so shattered, broken. They have no points around which to coalesce, no points around which to gather and give themselves momentum, whereas the government does. And what seems to me more likely is that it doesn't matter whether people believe it or not because the state's hold over the country is strong enough, especially with that core constituency of its 25% or whatever it is of strong supporters, that it has the power to essentially do what it's like, do what it likes, whether it's Putin in charge or Prigozhin or Ramzan Kadyrov or any of the names that are just being sort of tossed out as potential coup leaders from the inner circles and the elite. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, 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 I think it's good that you kind of dissected my my question. Um, I, I was referring to Russians as in Russian citizens. So all of the groups that you mentioned. Um, but uh, I think you kind of responded to that by by, you know, detailing, you know, what's going on among those different groups uh, and 
and you know how um, how hard it is to kind of put that all together and see what's really happening, uh, especially in far flung regions. Um, so uh, you know that was my. Uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna ask try to ask a follow up question since you mentioned uh, the kind of uh, very great attention being paid to you know to some of the protests and then also. Uh, there's a lot of talk about um, you know the possibility of of a of a coup, um, you know, uh, kind of inside a palace coup or maybe something a little bit outside the palace. But um, so I guess I would, and you mentioned, or you suggested that anyone who might take power, if that were to happen, and you know, getting ahead of ourselves here, certainly, but um, would would probably be able to control the situation. So I guess my question would be, uh, and I was thinking about this um, when somebody on, on, on Twitter, a commentator was, was talking about let's, we should uh, pay attention and, you know, be prepared for a possible coup. Um, it, wouldn't, wouldn't there be a lot of chaos if that were to happen? I mean, w- would the war really go on um, as it, you know, as it's been going, um, or would there be too much? Uh, obviously, this is this is hard to answer. So, uh, apologies, but or would there be just too much chaos in Russia um, for for kind of things to go on as as they were, just with a new person or group of people in power? I mean, you're you're right. This is extremely hard to answer, and it, in a sense, you know, I'm I'm not a military battlefield expert, so it's very hard for me to comment on. Does Russia have enough guns and uniforms and capability to actually run a war, especially as Ukraine's army seems to be going from strength to strength and is clearly very well trained and is receiving and about to receive even more arms? But I think the danger is that there doesn't seem to be a more liberal faction in the Kremlin about to take power or even interested in taking power in the long term, really. The only people that are being floated as alternatives are people that are like Putin or worse. They seem to be equally unhinged, equally attached to this idea of creating fairy tale and fake realities and equally attached to the idea that the Russian world is something that Moscow somehow innately should control and that Russia is engaged in a civilizational conflict with the West, whatever the West means. And so the danger is that they will try to prosecute this sort of war, that they will hold on in eastern Ukraine or they will indiscriminately bomb Ukrainian civilians and God forbid that they should try nuclear warfare as well. I know that's being talked about a lot and it doesn't really bear thinking about, but who knows? And who would have predicted 10 months ago that we'd be in this position today, let alone 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and let alone 30 years ago when the Soviet Union was collapsing? Uh, Yes, absolutely. Um, So I'll just repeat, it's definitely, and that's my, my, my fault. We kind of, I asked a question that that does really take things kind of beyond, far beyond where we where we are. But I think uh, your your answer is quite, uh, you know, quite illuminating um, in terms of, um, 
the, the kinds of people who are, you know, who, who might continue uh, with, with what's happening now with the war in Ukraine. Um, so we're going to, um, getting a little short on time, but let's take uh, a few questions. Uh, we have time for a few questions. So I'm going to uh, read the first question uh, coming in from a message. Uh, and the question is, haven't the Russian people reached the stage where they know everything their government tells them is probably untrue. Don't they ask themselves why no other media with different viewpoints are tolerated? This is one of the really frustrating things, and it's, it is hard to understand. It is hard to get your head around the extent to which the Putin government has done a good job, or perhaps a good job is the wrong word, an effective job over the last 20 years of telling people that everything that happened in the 1990s was bad, that the West was bad, anything tainted with the West is innately bad, and that any stories that are quote-unquote anti-Russian are associated with the West and therefore are bad and probably lies. And they stage a beautiful version of reality in which Russia is saving Ukrainian children, and this is the most effective propaganda story that they've had over the last eight years, and indeed the last eight months, is that if you turn on the television, and a lot of, and again, this goes back to my point about Twitter virality, a lot of the videos that we see going viral on Twitter are the small excerpts from Russian news where criticism of Russia's generals is made, and other bad things that seem to point to some sort of change. But if you log on to Russian social media networks, not just the crazy military bloggers, but the average sort of VK, you know, friendly sort of family Facebook groups, what are people sharing? They are sharing touching stories of Ukrainian children, supposedly, or Russian children as they are labeled, who have been bombed or shelled by Ukrainian forces and rescued by Russian soldiers. And the image they get is of little blonde-haired, blue-eyed girls and boys running up to Russian soldiers and embracing them. Now, whether it's staged or whether it's real doesn't matter, but it creates the impression that Russia is the liberator. Russia is the good guy. And when you talk to the 25% of Russia's constituents, who are the most head-banging, warmongering people you can think of, they genuinely believe that they are the good guys. They do not doubt it. And I have been engaged in, as part of research for my, for my next book, I've been engaged in many conversations over the last few months with people like this who plead with me, who implore me to understand that I've been lied to. I don't understand. I'm the one living in the fairy tale reality that America and Kiev is filled with Nazis and these people are murdering Russian children and if you don't watch out they'll come for your children and everybody else's children too right this is the reality that people are living in and these people are genuinely upset when I talk to them that, that I don't get it in the same way that we can't understand why they don't get it right and it's when your friends when your family are sharing this material on social media when you build up this wave where just, you know, every few stories, yeah, most of it's just whatever, the same lifestyle crap that we 
We get on social media, diets and sports and pictures of kittens and dogs. But now and again, a story will come in that's just really effective, and really heartbreaking and heartrending. And it is irresistible. You cannot resist it when you're stuck in this bubble. You have to somehow stand on the outside. But Russians have no idea how to stand on the outside because they've been on the inside of this bubble for so long. Uh, it's also a great answer, I, and I, it struck me in watching and listening to Putin's uh, address on Friday, you know, the, a lot of the reaction in the West was, you know, this is over the top, you know, more so than before, outrageous, you know, off the rails. Um, but, and, and of course, there's been quite a lot uh, in, in terms of his addresses in the past year that have been off the rails. Um, but um, But I'm afraid my impression was more that, for the people, you know, I, you know, you can talk about his core, but for those, uh, uh, you know, for the people who, who are in that bubble, I guess, you know, it's it's probably a pretty good speech. It's more of the same. Uh, it's rousing. Um, so to me, it, it's sort of uh, the kind of thing that, that wouldn't really make make a difference um, and, and, you know, certainly isn't going to send uh, thousands of people who, more or less believe Putin or more or less favor uh, the war or don't oppose it uh, to change their minds. So that was kind of my main impression from the speech. Now, um, I'll go on to another question uh, that we've received. Um, and this is, I'm not sure where, but it's my, the questioner says, my Russian, my Russian neighbors haven't heard from their families in Moscow and in northern Ukraine. They are angry and they do not like what Putin has done. And their families said the same before going dark. Then the question is, how does he get out of this? In other words, Putin. He, Putin is in a corner with an ineffective military and a strong resistance and U.S. support. I'm always sorry to hear what's what's happening with people who are angry with the regime, disappointed. And I think we do need to give Russians more credit for doing or attempting to oppose the regime. And I, I genuinely think that any opposition to the regime is good right now. The, the, the opposition is so fragmented. But how how Putin gets out of this I really, I really don't know. I think for a long time I was arguing that he could declare that a pretty embarrassing compromise, like only managing to seize a small chunk of Ukrainian territory, was a victory of sorts and that he could have retreated. But there seems to be no, no reverse button. There seems to be no willingness to go backwards. And so maybe, maybe the answer is that he could declare that, you know, these four provinces are, are all that they re ever really wanted, that this is a victory, hooray, we did World War II again, we saved, we saved the ethnic Russians from the fascists from the West. But the problem is that Ukraine is going to keep attacking. There is no doubt, and I, you know, and again, you would have to ask the military experts, but it seems that you, Russia probably won't be able to hold all of that territory. Hence, you get this absurd 
we've annexed the territory, but we don't know, or we're not willing to tell you which bits we've annexed yet, probably because we don't know, because we're not sure where the military is going to land up. And it's, it's hard to see how you can get out of this with his dignity intact. However, once again, I would point you to the effectiveness of the propaganda in creating new narratives and just telling people to go back to that idea of performativity, telling people this is what we wanted, this is what we planned, and just make it a reality afterwards just by saying it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think what's happening with the with the kind of details of the the annexation uh, laws that that uh, and the the, the agreements, uh, so-called treaties that that Putin signed with the regions, is kind of pointing to that. Um, I mean, I thought, uh, you know, on the one hand, they seem to be leaving the. Uh, um, leaving a little room for not controlling uh, all of Kherson and Zaporizhia. At least for now, they seem to be leaving a little room for, for that possibility, uh, despite the kind of very, you know, belligerent and sort of uh, comments by Putin in which, you know, he said, well, there's no, you know, this is how it is. Um, we control these regions. Um, but as you said, so, you know, what, what could, conceivably or theoretically come out of that would be um, Russia controlling the Donbass and uh, and then part or no part of the Kherson and Zaporizhia. But there's so many uh, things that point away from that, including, you know, as you said, uh, Ukraine is going to continue to to try to retake uh, as much of, of, of its own country as it can. And then also you know, Russia doesn't even control all of the Donetsk uh, region, which uh, it has not said, you know, it, it doesn't know where the borders is. It says the borders are, are you know, the existing borders. So, you know, and there's plenty of other reasons why, um, you know, I don't think that's uh, really a possibility. I did find it interesting that they do seem to be leaving some kind of a door open to, to not controlling all of those regions, though. Um, so, uh, you know, but as you say, uh, uh, and, and kind of, it also strikes me that, you know, you say you're going to go with the propaganda and in a way, what Pesquale was saying today suggests, you know, they don't really, in a way, they don't really, they're not paying attention to the situation on the ground. They're saying, these are our regions, you know, and then, you know, we'll, we'll take them later or, uh, so it's it's quite it's quite a it's quite a bizarre situation, um, and but but your uh, your answers there are very very cogent as well. Now let's see if we have any other any other questions coming in. We're a bit short on time. So you can request uh, to speak in order to ask a question. So we'll give it a few more moments um, for anyone to do that if they want to ask. Okay, uh, looks like there's a question from Martin Zeilig. Apologies for pronunciation, if inaccurate. Uh, go ahead, Martin. 
uh, Martin, you had the speaker privilege, and but it looks like your mic is off. Do you, oh, if you I'm, want to ask a question, yes, I'm. I'm here. Uh, thank you, Steve, uh, and uh, Dr. Garner as well for your always informed uh, comments. Um, just a, a really, really important site. Uh, and good morning from uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Um, l l let me, if I may, just briefly share with you. I I've been in um, communication uh, via secure channel with uh, uh, a Russian um, opposition person, uh, vehemently uh, opposed to... Uh, to uh, the uh, the regime in, in the Kremlin, and in this um, in the latest message I got, uh, this um, this opposition figure said from the very beginning, I believe that those who supported the maniac and his decision to start the war were either schizophrenics, option, and then in parentheses option dash complete morons or complete moral freaks. If the West had immediately helped Ukraine radically, there would not have been a monstrous price paid by Ukraine, but only a positive result. I just wanted to share that with you. You can comment on it. And, and my, my question um, is, I noticed um, this morning when I got up just a short time ago, there was a, a post by uh, Dr. Francis Fukuyama, uh, no introduction needed for, for that uh, scholarly gentleman. And he said, a much bigger Russian collapse will unfold in the coming days. So if you could comment on that. And uh, thank you very much. I appreciate um, your, um, your superb site. Thank you. So I think, the, you know, the comment from the opposition member or the anti-Putinist that you've been speaking to is indicative that there is a lot of rage in Russia about this war. Do not labour under the misapprehension that Russians are okay with this war and that everybody is kind of sitting on their, sitting on twiddling their thumbs and doing nothing about it. The difficulty is where does somebody like that, and Martin, maybe your friend is different and they're very, very active, but where does somebody like that, who feels disconnected from the opposition, who has seen the opposition beaten by police, tortured, Navalny ritually sacrificed, essentially, through Novichok and the constant imprisonment that he faces and often solitary confinement that he faces, how does somebody like that begin to go out and protest and feel like they can make any difference whatsoever to the war. That's a good comment, uh, Dr. Garner. Sorry to interrupt you. I, I, uh, you're right. And th this is an, an older person. Um, and um, um, I, I hate using the word because it sounds so, I don't know, um, elitist. <laughs> Sorry to say that, but, but, but this person is, is, is an intellectual and, uh, did distribute, according to a, a much earlier message, a petition uh, which apparently one colleague had leaked to the authorities. And um, um, this, uh, again, I don't want to say if, it, if it's uh, what the gender of this person is, 
but this opposition person uh, was enraged in a message that was sent to me afterwards and, and used all sorts of um, epithets to describe uh, the person who had leaked this. Uh, but yeah, that's an excellent point, Eraser. Thank you. As to Fukuyama, I don't know. I hope he's right. All right. Well, that's a that's a good uh, pithy answer. Um, and uh, we'll see whether uh, whether that whether he's whether he's right this time. Um, there is another question. I, I think we have time for one more. Uh, and it would be from Rachel Atwood. So uh, Rachel Atwood um, can go ahead and speak. Can you hear me? Yes, but it's. I'm not sure it's clear enough. Or can you say a few more words? Oh, sorry, we'll I didn't hear you until just now. Um, I... Now it's clear, oh, okay. yes. Um, Hi, I'm Rachel. I'm actually in Kiev. Uh, and sorry if I came too late to the, to the show to ask about any updates on the uh, stories of kidnapped children from Ukraine, particularly as relates to the annexed territories. If, or has any, has there been any kind of follow up with them? I don't know if if as part of this annexation they have been able to get some sort of increased contact, or is that uh, are they kind of just blown to the wind? So I can maybe tell you a little bit about um, the way that the, the children are being presented in Russia. And that is that, as I mentioned, this, this story about the rescuing of supposedly ethnic Russian children is the most effective propaganda story that they've found during the war. And indeed, as I pointed out, since 2014, since Crimea. And so what you will what you get tuning into russian media is maybe maybe i'll give a specific example of how this how this works there is a tv chat show called the male and the female which is sort of jerry springer come soviet show trial show where basically you know they invite people on and they dress them down for being insufficiently good in whatever goodness russia deems to be uh, correct these days and they had a series of specials a couple of months ago where they followed the the children of Donetsk and they gave these beautifully framed videos. They're only quite short, 10 or 15 minutes, where they went to meet these children at a sort of children's home that had been taken in from Ukraine. And they gave stories of how brutally they were mistreated in Ukraine and how happy they were to be in Russia. And they showed pictures of these kids, you know, singing Russian songs and speaking Russian. The presenter, of course, the whole time, who is the uh, the wife of the former Arsenal forward, Andrei Arshavin, if anyone remembers him for his uh, slightly incompetent Arsenal career. She breaks down on camera. She's in floods of tears as she meets these kids. She's just overcome with joy that finally these kids are safe and they're becoming more Russian. Because to be more Russian is to be safer, is to be happy, is to be at peace. And yes, we all know that this is completely topsy-turvy and completely backwards. But this is this is the story that people are getting. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there are other stories about kids who, uh, you know, came to Russia and at first, the, I think the human rights ombudswoman said, you know, at first they were criticizing Russia and now they are praising Russia. So um, it's just the kind of thing that's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to hard to bear and hard to fathom. Um, thanks very much for your for your question and and uh, for your answer, um, Dr. Garner. And uh, I'm going to wrap it up here because we are pretty much out of time. So, Ian, thanks very much for joining me. Uh, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Perfect. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you, everybody, for listening. All right. Great to have you. Now, once again, I've been speaking to Dr. Ian Garner, an expert on Russian war propaganda, whose forthcoming book, Stalingrad Lives, explores how Soviet propagandists created a myth of the battle that has captured Soviet and Russian minds uh, for 80 years or more. Now, Ian, uh, Stalingrad Lives comes out in a few months. Is that right? Yes. 15th of December, available for pre-order from major retailers now. All right. Excellent. Uh, looking forward to it. Um, and thanks very much. Now, uh, meanwhile, Ian's working on his second book about fascism and the future of Russia, which seems like a particularly important issue at this time. And my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. As I mentioned at the start, this conversation will also be published as a podcast and you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll be back again next Monday, and please keep an eye out on Friday for my newsletter, The Week in Russia. Thanks for listening.